The Black Experience in Arkansas, as elsewhere in America, a chronicle of slavery and the subsequent struggle for equality. Two centuries after the first African Americans were brought to the Arkansas Territory, how much progress? How to address the continuing gaps in income, opportunity, and advancement? For this edition of Arkansas Week, it's Black History Month. What it means for the now and the tomorrow. And we'll begin in a moment. Support for Arkansas Week provided by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, the Arkansas Times, and KUAR-FM 89. Hello again, everyone. Thanks very much for joining us. Not just in our state, but across the nation. It's Black History Month. Its forerunner almost a century ago was Black History Week. Five decades ago, President Gerald Ford agreed that one week a year was insufficient to the task, so he tacked on another three. There are celebrations, observances, justly, but it's also a time for assessment. And to do that with a focus on Arkansas, we're joined by four individuals with excellent vision. Dr. Sybil Hampton retired after a career in higher education and a decade as president of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. Dr. Jesse Hargrove is a professor at Philander Smith College at Little Rock, serves as well on the Arkansas Black History Commission. LaShannon Spencer is CEO of the nonprofit Community Health Centers of Arkansas, and the Honorable Wiley Branton Jr. is a judge of the Sixth Circuit and the son of an American legal and civil rights legend. To our panel, thank you all very much for being a part of the program, for being the program, actually. Dr. Hampton, beauty before age, uh, we'll begin with you. Where, what we, what was thought of as movement days, is there a new movement now, or do, is a new movement needed? Has it just shape-shifted? I am thunderstruck by where we are now and so concerned that we need a new movement, that we need to have, particularly among our young people, this sense of we can make a difference and we must work in conjunction with those older heads to figure it out. Well, is that sense, you're suggesting that sense is absent from the younger generation? I'm not, I'm not aware in my life here in Little Rock and here in Arkansas of the type of movement. Certainly we see young people doing very important things. We have a young mayor in Little Rock and we have people who are part of his team. But I'm thinking of that larger community-based type of conversation and awareness that communities need to be mobilized. What happened, Doctor? Why is it not there? What's What's the missing spark or the fuel? I only can guess, and I think the guess was that we didn't realize that the journey toward equality was a million-mile, perhaps million-year journey. And we may have thought that we were closer than we actually have, that we actually are now, and so that we stop doing the kinds of things in the community to build the awareness that makes it possible to then move and act and speak out. 
What's the source of that, though? A frustration, an anger, a, the dream denied, or uh, in, among the younger generation? I mean. Perhaps the younger generation is stunned and stunted. And millennials are different, but I think that young people are, were on the verge of having these wonderful lives that they came to expect in a very different way than I did because I was a part of the Jim Crow era. And I was questing for something, and young people, I think, may have felt that they were almost there. And then there are other young people, and I know this, Steve, who believe that it can't be accomplished. There are a number of young people who are very depressed, who are disappointed, and who don't have hopes and dreams about the possibility of America fulfilling its promises for African Americans. Dr. Hargrove, you work every day with young, mostly African American university students. Do you see that deficit? I see optimism for the Deuce Millennium generation. The DMG is a part of that group born uh, 1997 and started school with the new millennium in 2001. The first wave graduated in 2015 and then went on to college and graduated 2019 just last year. That generation, last student, will finish in the year 2031, uh, 33. They will be about 34 years old. And then we're gonna start a Deuce Millennium II, which will go another 30 plus years. And when you look at the teachers, I worked in teacher education at Philander Smith College uh, and was part of that, that trained teachers and became the state president of all 18 teacher training institutions. We were training those teachers to understand the importance of the, what skills the students needed to graduate. Uh, and we found that there were achievement gaps among that generation. And our goal became to close those achievement gaps so that it can be a better student who can understand what democracy is really about. And civic engagement and civic responsibility is what we try to instill into that generation. We find that throughout the nation, as well as in our state of Arkansas, they are beginning to get involved whenever there's a social justice or issue that they feel that they has been a wrong situation. They organize through the social media. We used to walk in the streets. Now the young people educate themselves with Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, and Snapchat. Save us. Yes. Go ahead. And so it's a it's a matter of organizing differently, but still focus on what they view as important. And that's basically um, why I'm optimistic about this new generation. Do you share that optimism, Dr. Spencer? I do. Um, but Steve, I wouldn't be here sitting and having the role that I have if it wasn't for the three that's sitting on this panel with me today. I think about the spark that they had 
um, together collectively. And as you heard from both doctors, they talked about, or they used the word, they used plural, we. They didn't use I as singular, but they used plural together, mean together collectively. And I think sometimes in Dr. Hampton, she talked about that million mile journey. I think some within my generation have stopped and rested during that journey. Why? Why rest? Satisfied or fault in a false sense? or uh... Satisfied in a false sense that I have... Satisfied or, or frustrated? Let me put it that a way. A combination of both. Mm-hmm. But going back to that million mile journey, I, and it's going back to, you heard them use the word plural, together, we, mm-hmm. collectively. And I would say for my generation, that's 45 to 55, We've paused Mm -hmm. and our eyes are just beginning to open because of what's going on across the world and even policies on a national level. He talked about that generation that's using Twitter, Facebook. That wasn't necessarily my generation. During my generation, it was big to be a part of that Facebook movement. We were still accustomed to getting newspapers every day, having two different newspapers, within our city and watching real news on television and not from the tweet and reading long, very detailed, descriptive news instead of three to four sentences, which is what kids are reading today. Bothers you. I I have the suspicion it bothers everybody on this panel. Your moderator confesses it bothers him to see kids thinking with their thumbs as opposed to, or they seem to be anyway. And I agree. And he talked about that academic gap. That's going to be a part of that academic gap because kids are not learning how to actually write that scientific, that APA, that MLA, just having that skill set and how to write correctly because of the jargon that they're using with such small words through the texting. Judge Brenton, where are you? So... One of I, I would using consi- my thumbs there. I would consider myself sort of an old school person. I grew up during the civil rights movement, and what I've observed from where I sit now is, all the time I grew up, there was some unity among black people. We were all doing it for the cause, and it didn't really matter what your station was in life. Uh, we were all suppressed. When I was born in 1951, basically all people, black people, were suppressed across the United States. But with the uh, advancements that have been made in the civil rights movement, we now have, you can go to any school, you can have uh, achieve in the corporate world. Uh, we have black attorneys who are, are, represent corporations. We had President Obama, and we, we've made tremendous progress. So some of the things that were blocks to black people when I was a child no longer exist. But I think as a consequence of that, we have lost our sense of, of unity and sort of fighting for everybody. Mm-hmm. So because if, if I can make it on my own merit, maybe I'm not as concerned about people uh, who don't have it as, as, as well as I do. So I think that's kind of what we've, in one sense, we've been 
we're, we're failing from our success uh, in terms of a group cohesion. So one in sort of in looking out uh, sort of towards the future, I think we're at a tremendous crossroads in America right now in terms of which direction we're going to take. This, of course, you mentioned earlier that this is a presidential election year. There's a lot on the table with America right now, and that is what kind of America are we going to be? As a newly new grandparent, I'm, one, I'm worried about the future that my grandbaby's going to have. I'm, I'm concerned, you know, we've lost manufacturing jobs. I guess the big thing is, if I can hone it down, the middle class that existed in the 60s and the 70s, that's, that's a standard that's hard to achieve now. And we're having this gap between those who are very successful and those who can barely make it. The wealth gap is increasing. And I wonder what, and it's not really just for black America that I'm talking about. I'm talking about all of America. Biracial. Multiracial. Where are we headed? What kind of futures can our children and our grandchildren have? And, uh, and I'm very concerned that, that uh, we're at a major crossroads in this nation. Uh, and, and since we are in an election year, if, if I could sort of get this point in, I think it's awfully important for people who are registered to vote mm-hmm. to get out there and vote. Mm-hmm. First of all, become informed voters uh, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. and People need to educate themselves on the issues and the candidates, and then they need to get out to vote. And I would say that to in the entirety of America, not just black America, but it's awfully important that we get politically engaged, which is something that I think we've been missing in the United States for a number of years, uh, that people just don't take seriously enough their right to vote and for the minority communities, the hard-fought right to vote. Uh, and and uh, as a consequence, we may have uh, leaders that may not necessarily represent our, our best interests. And I'm not going to get partisan because as a judge I can't recommend that, but I can recommend that people become informed voters and that they vote. I was sitting here uh, thinking, Your Honor, that perhaps there would be a substantial part of the black audience who would think, you're being a, you're some, you're some, you're a Pollyanna. There are still institutional barriers to African-American and now Latino achievement as well that still have to be overcome. All four of you are superbly educated individuals, and I have to believe that that's where you're going to tell young kids, put that thing down, read a book. It's, it's cool to do well in school, Dr. Hampton. I absolutely um, would say that the thing that has disappointed me most is to run into young people who don't have the passion for education that I think we had and who really believe that education requires a sacrifice that doesn't have anything at the end of it for them. And so my concern is that I believe that here in this state, our young people have to believe that they matter. And one of the ways that they will learn that they matter is that we make the investments in young people that are missing. I don't think that young people in communities have places to go to do, our young people don't have places to go to do and to learn to be like Girl Scouts, Y-teens, all the kinds of things that we had growing up. Nor do they have schools, I think, in which the schools 
really help them to understand that they matter and that their learning will make a difference in what America is going to be. Anyone? I definitely agree. Um, because as she was talking, I was, she said, uh, you know, why teens? Made me think about Sadie Hawkins' dance. And so it also then made me think about home economics or just basic classes that were once a part of that core curriculum, not only girls took, but boys just as well. And so understanding the significance in education, but I go back to how fortunate I am. And when you think about uh, these three that are sitting at the table, they knew it was important to have a vision to spark life, to spark um, that intellectual knowledge into others. I always grew up, they used to say, read a book, because information is actually hidden in a book. And how many kids today understand the importance of actually reading a book and learning the vocabulary words that are often in that book that they may not understand, but if they don't understand it, how to read it, but to write it down on a piece of paper so they can go and understand it, the, suff uh, the prefix and the suffix, and understand that meaning. That comes back to family. And sometimes we cannot blame um, institutions or communities if that foundation is not at home. Years ago, we had a sense of community. Mm -hmm. If you didn't get it in your home, you got it in Ms. Jones, you got it in a Judge Wiley Bren's home. You, you, it was a sense of community and sense of pride. And, and that, just sort of to touch on that, one of the things that's really changed is we have this thing called social media. Uh, when I grew up as a child, we had ABC, NBC, and CBS, and that's if the rabbit ears work correctly. You had your church, and you had your school, and you had your parents, and those were the influences on you. But now with the social media, our kids are getting unfiltered messages mm -hmm. that we don't really control unless we're, I guess a few parents will step in and control the message. But our kids are learning things and they're, they're taking on cultural values that don't emanate from a church. They don't emanate from the parents that this, this social media who knows where it comes from. And I think that's really having a negative impact, not only on our children, but on our adults. I mean, one of the problems that, that I'm concerned about America now in general is that, you know, people can choose what facts they want to believe. Well, when I grew up, facts were facts and, and other things were not. You didn't have multiple versions of the facts, but you can go on social media and you can find anything that will support what it is you want to believe as opposed to what the reality is. But, but getting back to the kids, you know, uh, one, of, one of the other economic challenges that lays ahead is you used to be able to plan for a career, and you know if you hooked mm -hmm. up with the company, you could be there and make it to retirement. That's not the reality now. Businesses that I never thought would close down have closed down. Uh, career, you, you can be in a career, and all of a sudden something will change, and you're, you become obsolete. And I think one of the challenges for us as a society and, and for our children is to figure out what kind of jobs are going to be out there 10 or 15 years from now? How do you get trained or prepared for those? And, uh, you know, with the loss of so many manufacturing jobs, which used to be good paying jobs that would support a good quality of living for a middle class, 
with, with the disappearance of those, and I don't know how those actually get replaced, I think we have some real economic challenges ahead and how to keep our population. And again, I'm talking about across the board. I'm talking about white folks, brown folks, everybody. How does everybody get a meaningful job that's going to provide a, a decent standard of living uh, and, and how can we maintain that? That's really one of the fundamental challenges facing America as we go into the future. You are entitled to your own opinion, but not to your own facts, mm -hmm. said Mr. Moynihan, uh, who 50 years ago warned of a deterioration, a breakdown okay. in the African-American family and the deleterious impact it was likely to have on generations ahead. Not that white America need necessarily brag about its out-of-wet-lock birth rate, which is substantial. But how big a roadblock was Mr. Moynihan right, in other words, the, I, the I, breakdown in the family? Let, I, me, I, let me say, doctor, you, go ahead. you mentioned that Moynihan <laughs> report, and that Moynihan report uh, of 69 uh, began to say that we were moving toward two different societies, yeah. one black and one white. And the reason why uh, he was, that report was able to point that out was due to the fact that what, there was local control. And you've heard the judge talk about uh, there's a disconnect. If you go back to schools, they were locally controlled with local school boards and uh, teachers were in place of the parents in locus parentis. You don't have in locus parentis guiding the schools as during our generation so now school, a student goes to a school that is no longer in his or her community. And so there's not, you could go next door, you, the, the person who owned the, 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 the supermarket, your parents knew, the person, the, of course, the barber, the person knew, and different things. Now communities are not such as they, that simple. So now we got to find a way to get local back into the mm -hmm. schools. We're building a new school right here in our city of Little Rock. And how do you get that new school, to, which is on the skirts, buy-in from the community so that people will feel the need mm -hmm. to work with the young people in the form of tutoring, mentoring, advising, so that they gain a sense of belonging because right now, students don't have a sense of belonging because they see a lot of division. Dr. Ann? I actually want to say that one of the things that I want to say to our young people is that you don't have to be an icon to matter. I really believe that that's something else that's happened that, that we've been really talking about, that when we came up, you, we felt that little people, that just being doing your best doing your best for the, for the community, for your race, was very important. And now I think that young people are overwhelmed by this whole notion of icons and people want to be stars. And so if that's not really close to you in reality, you kind of are floating around and not really putting down roots and having any wings. And I think that we all are examples of people who we weren't stars. 
We were ordinary members of our community who believed that we might be able to do something, and maybe we turned out to be extraordinary, but it's not because we were born extraordinary. It's because we did the hard, hard work, and we believed that we mattered. And I want our young people, our young people, to know that they matter, they matter, and they can make a difference. Let me address this issue of breakdown in the family because that suggests that, that black folks sort of are at fault for the breakdown mm. of the family. And I, I want to be clear that historically the black family has been under attack by racist and discriminatory uh, policies. It started with snatching families out of Africa and enslaving people, separating them, sending them off to different plantations, and it has actually continued to this day. I mean, because once we got rid of slavery. There was still Jim Crow segregation. We were denied uh, economic opportunities. We, we were denied jobs. We were denied the right to vote. We were denied the right to hold office. And even though we've overcome many of those things, those have a lasting legacy that still fundamentally affects the, the black community. One of the things that's amazing really if you kind of look at it in a different way is that we had families that were able to overcome that and actually put us in a good position but but uh, so I agree that that there are issues with the breakdown of the family but I don't want to miss how that came to be and what's the blame for that and and that really is racism and discriminatory policies uh, practiced by I guess in one sense our economy our government uh, and the majority control in society and I think we can ever lose sight of that because I still think America owes uh, black folks, I guess we put the Indian folks in there as well, uh, they still owe something to these people to sort of undo some of the significant past injustices and past harms uh, that were done to our community. When I mentioned Moynihan, it was in terms of his warning, his admonition to a largely white Congress and a largely white political class. We are creating social, through social policies here, we're creating a social structure that is going to explode like a stick of dynamite in subsequent generations. You concur? Yes. Uh, let me do the politician flip on you because we, I know we have limited time, but you know, we are in early voting right now and there are judicial elections uh, on, on the ballot. And as a sitting judge, I certainly have, uh, cannot ethically endorse any candidate, and I'm not about to do that now. But I want to say that it really is important who your judges are. We have a Supreme Court race. We have Court of Appeals races. We, each of the districts around the state uh, have other circuit court uh, races. And judicial races are different than other races because judges can't go out and campaign uh, the way politicians, I don't even consider judges really politicians, but it is an elective process. And I would just sort of encourage people to try to learn as much as you can about the judicial, the judges who are running for various elections and make sure you get out and vote because if we complain about our juvenile justice or our criminal justice system, certainly one of the important cogs in the wheel uh, mm -hmm. are the judges who preside over those cases. Mm -hmm. That's most important that people become informed and, and then try to vote, vote on the candidate of their choice. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dr. Spencer, in the break, you were talking about how <coughs> our choices uh, uh, of heroes, particularly in the African-American mm -hmm. community, the thought occurred to me this massive outpouring, biracial, when mm -hmm. at the passing of Kobe Bryant mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. 
it dwarfed the expressions of grief when Congressman Cummins died. Mm -hmm. For uh, some. For, yeah, for some. For yes. some. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're absolutely correct. But you were talking about the importance when you were growing up Absol about the, nu the nuclear aspect of family life. It absolutely. But that's when, you know, you sat down at dinner time and there were six, you watched 60 Minutes or you knew that the worldly nightly news at six o'clock mm -hmm. was going to actually report reportable, factual information and not fluff media. But also you knew that you were going to get history within your church within your civic organization, and you knew who made sacrifices so you could have, even if they were not a part of your nucleus social capital circle, you were informed. It was about us c together collectively reaching back to pull others up compared to today. Back to something, uh, Dr. Hampton, you said earlier in the broadcast, do you fear what is often, whether it's de, fact, de jure or de facto, a a resegregation through the rise of the charter school movement in across the country but in Arkansas as well. You fear that the impact? I do fear the impact of that because I believe that we are a society that is very comfortable being separate and apart. I think that people work together in the workplace, but once you're outside the workplace, you really do see that we are separate and apart. And the, the, the tragedy of it for me is that if you are doing special things for your own children, you forget that the others matter. Uh, we are in a time and place, I honestly believe, in which we're being sent the message, once again, that some people don't matter. Their children don't matter. And, and I heard this. this. This is something I heard. When I came back to Arkansas in 1996, a very prominent Arkansan said, if I had known that the education of the children of the men who worked in my fields was important, I would have put more emphasis on it. I had to learn it the hard way because the economic uh, viability of my farm fell down because the people who were working didn't have the education to be uh, involved with technology. I agree with that because I think about equity meaning mm. access. Okay. And so Judge, you know, he was talking about the importance of voting. And I sit here and I look and I think about Medicare and how that message of Medicare for all, but we can't have Medicare for all if we don't have access. And so you have to think about what does access actually include? We gotta get more students going into medical schools, not only just going into medical schools, but understand the importance of actually returning back to their state and practicing medicine, not specialty, but primary care. Specialty is going to get you that higher income, but in order to be able to have Medicare for all, we got to have those primary care doctors going back home practicing in smaller towns and everyone not living in urban, but knowing that it's okay to live in a rural community. When you reside in a rural community, at times that community is very strong. 
I am. You're going to be back on a different subject on a subsequent <laughs> yeah. program. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, am Dr. so Harder. optimistic about this. When you see the society prior to the 1960s being a monocultural society, primarily white, recognized, yet other cultures were a part of it, moving to the 1960s of the recognition of a dual culture society of now blacks and his, uh, whites, yet there were other cultures moving from this dual culture society of the 60s to the 70s of a triethnic society of Hockley Pock's parents, who was an Asian-American court case for bilingual education, bringing about the recognition, yet Hispanics were uh, the beneficiaries of a lot of the bilingual education, but it was an Asian-American court case. I'm optimistic for this new generation moving to the 1980s from the 70s of triethnic to 80s multicultural um, where now Native Americans and Asian Americans say that we are part of the fabric that makes this country great to the 1990s of a pluralistic society where everyone has a right to belong, everyone has a right to contribute to the fabric of what makes this country great. I'm optimistic for these young people because we moved to the 2000s of a diversified society where we're saying women uh, we're being paid 60 cents for every dollar a male made, uh, but we're saying we're part of this diversity. Ageism, we're no longer discriminating against the aged, those who uh, LBGTQ uh, have the right to belong, to exist, a part of this new fabric of the society where everyone has a right to belong and exist. This is where we've come from. We can't go back, and we won't go back. This nation is moving forward. So those who are still believing in se separation and segregation, it's not going to happen. This nation is moving forward. And that's why we need good candidates who are able to talk about this democracy and where everyone belongs in this new society. These young people are not going backwards. They're going forward. I pray that you're right. Are you concerned that he might not be right, Judge? As I said, we're, we're at a crossroads, and it remains to be seen mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which direction we choose to pursue as a nation. Dr. Spencer talked about access to health care. I mean, how can any population, no matter its color, advance if it's not healthy? What other, so that, that is a, a public policy obstacle or an economic obstacle, what others do you see, Dr. Hampton? I really believe... Institutional... I believe there has to be a commitment to early childhood education and care, and I think it has to be a part of the public schools. I really believe that we need to have um, children come into the school setting, into high-quality school settings, as early as three and four if we're going to really overcome the gaps that occur because of what's not uh, occurring for them outside. I believe that Arkansas has got to invest in their seed corn and that begins with three and four year olds. And if I could follow up on that just the, because I do juvenile cases and one of my things over the years is part of because of some of the deficiencies or the inabilities of some of our families to provide for maybe what we got in our own homes, I think our schools really just have an expanded mission now. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we've adequately equipped our schools 
to meet the challenge. So if, if I like was in charge of things, I'm not, I'm not running for anything, but, but if I could control this, I would make sure that schools, every school actually had real social workers and, and that whenever uh, problems were identified with children, either attendance, they come filthy, they seem hungry, uh, behavior issues or whatnot, somebody would actually take a time out and figure out what's going on with that child, even if they had to call in the family for a family conference, and that we really approach it in a professional way to identify mm -hmm. why is little Johnny or little Susie not performing well in school, or why do why is this seem to be a problem? Why do they need glasses or whatever? And we're missing an opportunity, because we have mandatory school attendance, we're missing an opportunity to perhaps recognize and assess and evaluate and deliver appropriate services that would ultimately help our children be successful adults and keep them out of the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system. I really just think we have to double down. I'm not just saying throw money at the schools, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm thinking in a well thought out plan, make sure you have the proper professional there the proper professionals at the schools to identify potential problems and fix them be before they become larger problems. And we're missing an opportunity. He's talking about that true wraparound care, mm -hmm. not just care, that holistic approach to ensuring that that student, that child needs are being met so they can go to a Philander Smith College instead of going to prison. He's talking about what preventive services, not social services, but that LCSW having the connections to that parent, and it may not even be that parent, it can be that neighbor, but ensuring that that success mm -hmm. is built in at a much earlier age. Mm -hmm. Age three is so appropriate. When you start thinking about where we're competing on a national, on a global perspective, most other countries. <laughs> what they're talking about is the Tenth Amendment and how powers delegated to, uh, not delegated to the federal government, become the part of the state to do something about the or public not. schools. <laughs> and not. so, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to sit around and talk about the problems or the public going to get back into the public schools <laughs> as it was intended with the Tenth <laughs> Amendment for the local state but the states can't raise money. There were four ways to raise money, but now four states are not doing that anymore because we don't have the categorical grants. Uh, we don't have the, the full state funding that's needed to fund what the services that the judge is talking about and Spencer is talking about and what the early childhood program that my colleague, uh, Civil Bond, has so eloquently put out there the need for early childhood education, which means that the students don't know how to stand in line properly when they get when they skip early childhood education and go straight to, to first grade or kindergarten. They don't know how to behave appropriately. So now disciplinary problems sit in. There are 35 school districts in the state of Arkansas that have early childhood education as a part of the public schools. And there, I dare say, has not been nearly enough conversation about what that's meant in communities. It's rich and wonderful, and we're not talking about it so it can be replicated. 
And we have, in this particular state, over 240 school districts. And we're talking a half a million students. Now we're about a half a million students. And what can we do? We, there are not enough private schools to fill the slots. <laughs> so the, we have to invest in the public schools. Mm -hmm. Charter schools, not enough slots. So we have to think in terms of the public getting back in public, public education and making it rock. Dr. Spencer. I returned to Arkansas in 2016. My kid, my daughter started school at the age of three. So when we returned to Little Rock, she was already two grades ahead coming from Southern California compared to other kids mm -hmm. that's her age. Mm -hmm. What does that say? So when you, they said, being that champion, I am that champion for little Johnny that's not my son. Mm -hmm. I am that champion for little Sally that's not my daughter. Because I think about where I sit and I think about the opportunities that I've been afforded. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for the, for the backs and the shoulders of so many others, I would not be where I am today. So I think about the hand that reached up to grab me so I can be who I am and that God has ordained me to be. Amen. What? Amen. <laughs> Amen chorus here. We have four great voices here and it was a splendid conversation. We thank, thank all four of thank you, you very much. for being thank a part you. of the broadcast. Thank you for watching and we'll see you next time. <laughs>